Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina's vision is to create a future where every pet has a loving home and a healthy life, and they're making it happen through their nutritious pet foods as well as their Pet Finder platform, which matches pets with families. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 6th. Today, the future of the economic stimulus, the politics of face masks, and new etiquette in elevators. So when we think back to the beginning of the pandemic, obviously Congress took unprecedented steps to try to help Americans. I mean, there were those $1,200 checks that went out. There was unemployment assistance. There were loans for small businesses. But now what is Congress considering to try to help continue that that financial assistance? Well, there's a lot of partisan disputes at this point as to what if anything, is needed. I'm Erica Warner. I'm a congressional reporter for The Washington Post, and I focus on economic and budgetary issues on the Hill. All of the aid programs that were approved as the pandemic got underway were negotiated very quickly. The negotiations were tough, but all of the bills, the four bills that passed, were bipartisan. The money and the programs that were approved were completely unprecedented in scale and size. And Republicans now are looking back on some of the things that they did, and they don't like them. In particular, the unemployment insurance, which many Republicans think provided people an incentive to stay out of the workforce. Uh, We do need to continue unemployment insurance. It's extremely important at a time like this. But to pay people more not to work than to work doesn't encourage uh, resuming your job. And that will end in July. And we think that in order to create jobs, we need to incentivize people to go back to work, not encourage them to stay home. So they are determined not to repeat what they view as mistakes that they made under that intense pressure as the pandemic got underway. And so there's going to be some really tough fights about what to do going forward. So how much assistance from the first round of government stimulus is still out there right now? Well, there still is quite a bit of money that's been obligated, but not yet sent out. So when you talk about the unemployment insurance and the stimulus checks, there are still some people who are waiting for their checks. There are still people filing for unemployment. There was a huge backlog in a lot of states that were not really equipped to handle such large volumes of unemployment claims. So that money is still going out. There is more than $100 billion left in the Paycheck Protection Program, that small business assistance program, which the deadline for applying for those loans was just extended by the House and the Senate uh, right before they went out of session last week. So that money remains. 
So there is still some aid out there, but there's a key deadline approaching, which is July 31st when the enhanced unemployment assistance expires. So that's going to be one of the big issues confronting Congress when they come back into session later this month. And why is that such a big issue? Why is the expiration of this one program pretty scary to some people? Well, the program gave applicants an additional $600 a week on top of whatever unemployment benefit their states already offered. So that's a huge help for a lot of people who have gotten it. There's a big partisan dispute, however, about how effective that assistance has been and what the impact of it has been. Republicans will tell you that in many cases, it's proved a disincentive for people to go back to work because Republicans say people get more money on unemployment with that added benefit than they would going back to kind of lower paying jobs. Democrats want to continue that enhanced assistance. There's a Democratic bill that would change it so that once the unemployment rate hits 11% and potentially drops from there, that the benefit starts to phase out, but it would still be there. And there are some Republicans who simply want to end the benefit altogether, just let it expire. There's a Republican proposal that would give you a return to work bonus of $1,200. But Senator McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate, has talked about simply letting that money expire. And it's very unclear where the compromise might lie between the two parties on that. And so when it comes to these different views on the Hill of what should happen with this program, in some ways, I think it's a reflection of different views on what the actual state of the economy is, that people can look at jobs numbers and unemployment numbers and see very different things of whether we're back on the upswing or whether we're about to get worse. Yeah, we're at a very kind of precarious point where on Friday we got jobs numbers for June that were very good. It was a very good jobs report in many ways with 4.8 million new jobs added. However, that was a snapshot of a time that has kind of passed where we're now seeing huge spikes in coronavirus infections and states that had reopened businesses are now moving to close them, bars and restaurants and the like. So it's quite likely that many of those jobs that had been gained in June have now been lost. We won't know that for sure until we get the next jobs report. So there are different ways to spin it. And Democrats tend to focus on the new spike in infections, the fact that we know jobs are being lost, while President Trump in particular and other Republicans following his lead focus on the good news from the jobs report. And what do economists say about the actual state of the economy right now and whether or not this unemployment money is something that is necessary for the future? Well, it does, of course, depend on on who you talk to. But a lot of economists will say that the unemployment insurance is a big stimulus to the economy. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars and that if you take that away, the economy could potentially start to crater. It would be a big reduction in money 
people would lose a lot of money, not be able to spend, potentially not be able to stay in their homes. So it could really be a big blow to the economy to remove that big stimulus. And are Democrats basically just pushing for this unemployment money to continue? Or are there other things that they think need to be in place to help get people through the next phase of this pandemic? A lot of Democrats would like to see that unemployment insurance benefit continue as it is. There are proposals to continue it, but phase it out if there are positive economic indicators. There's also debate about what other things to do. Democrats would like another round of stimulus checks, which President Trump has also indicated that he's open to, but that a lot of Senate Republicans are very wary about doing. There is a debate about whether to send more aid to states and localities, something that Democrats really want to do, but that Republicans, again, resist. And there's going to be probably more consensus about spending money on the healthcare parts of the pandemic. So devoting more money to vaccine development, treatments, and that sort of thing. And where does the White House land on trying to pump more money into the economy right now, especially when you think about the fact that November isn't that far away? And I would imagine that the White House and President Trump would look at the landscape right now and see that there is a lot to lose if you have a lot of Americans who are unemployed or or financially struggling. Yeah, definitely. One complicating factor here as Congress starts to eye the next round of negotiations is that the White House has sent mixed signals on a number of these programs. President Trump has made public comments on a couple of occasions that suggest he would like to see another round of stimulus checks. Another round of direct payments for individuals. Do you support that at this time? I do. I support it, but it has to be done properly. And I support actually larger numbers than the Democrats, but it's got to be done properly. Uh, I think it's obvious why there could be a political benefit to sending out more money with the election just months away. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, in a private meeting with Senate Republicans recently, talked up the stimulus checks, made clear that he supports them. But though. White House position on some of these other issues, including the unemployment insurance, state and local aid, has been a little bit unclear. There are factions within the White House pushing and pulling in different directions on some of these issues. And so that's made the landscape less clear as we move into this next round of talks. What do you think is at stake here when it comes to this question of of how far should Congress go in trying to get the country through these really challenging economic times? The stakes could not be higher. The presidency is at stake. Control of the Senate is at stake. Many polls have shown the public giving low marks to how the president has handled the epidemic. This round of negotiations, unlike when they passed the first relief bills in March and April, will take place with the election looming, the conventions happening. There's a number of Senate Republicans who are vulnerable to losing their seats. The Senate majority is at stake. I mean, how this next round of negotiations 
is handled and what emerges to help individual Americans and to help the economy could really shift the balance of power in this country. Erica Werner covers economic policy for The Post. The way that the president has approached the coronavirus has been markedly different from how many Republican politicians and especially governors has been. I'm Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. Those officials have increasingly warmed to a more grim assessment to taking further precautions up to and including uh, mandating the wearing of masks and basically just acknowledging that this is a situation that is very severe, that it's very real and that it's getting much worse. The president has not really acknowledged that over the course of the last month when this resurgence has occurred. He's really stuck by his initial stand, which was to downplay the severity of the virus. And we've made a lot of progress. Our strategy is moving along well. But we've learned a lot. We've learned how to put out the flame. We are unleashing our nation's scientific brilliance. He's resisted the idea that he should call for people to wear masks. He's even questioned the efficacy of masks at one point. And just generally, he's been much more concerned with casting this as a successful federal response rather than acknowledging the gravity of the situation. And of course, even this past weekend, President Trump gave a speech where he basically suggested that 99 percent of coronavirus cases are not actually a big deal, which is just not true. Right. So this has been a staple of the president's rhetoric, which is that the vast majority of people are going to recover, which is true. But the president really took things a step further when he said, Now we have tested almost 40 million people. By so doing, we show cases, 99% of which are totally harmless. That does not at all align with what health officials have said. His aides really struggled to account for that comment uh, after he made it on Saturday. Is the president wrong? So I'm not going to get into who's right and who's wrong. We have more than 129,000 dead and more than 2.8 million cases. How many cases would you say are harmless? Well, what I'd say is, you know, any case um, we don't want to have in this country. But I think it really crystallizes whether the president has significant doubts about just how severe the situation is or he just wants to reopen the country and views negative headlines about the coronavirus situation as an impediment to that. Either way, what we're seeing is the president adjusting his rhetoric from downplaying it initially to acknowledging the severity in mid-March and a few weeks after that, and now really focused very much on uh, downplaying what's actually taking place in the United States right now. 
And when it comes to this gap between what the president is saying and what we know is actually science and good public health policies, it seems like a lot of that gets focused on this issue of masks and whether or not to wear a mask and whether wearing a mask should be required. What do you think it is about masks that has become so politicized more so than maybe any other part of public health policy in the pandemic? Well, the president throughout his presidency and, of course, during the 2016 campaign really focused like a laser on stoking culture wars, on on the idea that uh, his supporters were being persecuted or that they were being told what to do by the government. The president, I think, when it comes to his mask rhetoric, really that drives the point home that he views these culture wars as either being beneficial or that he likes the idea that people around him uh, feel like they're being persecuted in some way. He's never explicitly said, don't wear a mask. But if you look at this over the course of time, he has almost always emphasized that this is a voluntary federal guideline. By the way, uh, here's my my mask right here. But But I'm making a speech. So I won't have it. Your now, second question was, I couldn't hear you. The can second, you, can you take it up because I cannot hear I'll, you? I'll just speak louder, sir. Oh, this, I would wear, if I were in a group of people and I was close, you would wear one. Oh, I would. I would. Oh, I have. I mean, people have seen me wearing one. We did see in recent days. He said, basically for the first time, that people should wear masks if they want to. Um, but even that really pales in comparison to what many of the Republican officials in these hard hit states are talking about when it comes to masks, which is the idea that this is the easiest way for us to be allowed to reopen our economies. This is the best thing and the easiest thing we can do to stamp this out and get back to normal uh, sooner than later. But that's not a message that the president has seemed to want to broadcast. He still either harbors doubts about whether masks are important or views it as something of a referendum on him and on the severity of the situation. And it feels like that is what is putting a lot of these Republican officials in such a tough spot because they recognize that there is something politically out of sync with what President Trump is doing when they are either encouraging or mandating that people in their states or their towns uh, wear masks. But at the same time, they're dealing with the realities of people being sick on the ground. And it's sort of like this political symbol is coming up against the bad look of just having a huge growth in COVID cases in, in the place where you're governing. Right. And and that's the why the calculus is somewhat different for these governors than for the president. Look, the, the politicization of masks is something that has been going on for months now. There was a poll out on Monday that showed uh, even 66% of Republicans say that they are wearing masks. But that's significantly less than Democrats, which is about nine in 10 or more uh, who are who are wearing masks in certain circumstances or in almost all circumstances. And so this is something that has clearly taken hold with a perhaps small but very sizable portion of the Republican Party base. But I think what's interesting here is that there has been a long running kind of below the radar um commentary from these Republican officials about how this should not be an issue that's politicized. They've even talked about how the president himself should be more forceful. We saw that from Senator Lamar Alexander last week, who basically said the president, if he was more forceful on this, people would listen to him because he's the president and and they support him. The president has plenty of admirers. They would follow his lead. 
The stakes are too high for this political debate about pro-Trump, anti-Trump mask to continue. And who are other Republicans who have come out pretty strongly in favor of masks? I think the earliest ones were North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who back in late May actually was talking about how this is not an issue that should be politicized. If someone is wearing a mask, uh, they're not doing it to represent what political party they're in or what candidates they support. They might be doing it because they've got a five-year-old child who's, who's been going through cancer treatments. They, they might have vulnerable adults in their life. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine offered a similar message at that point. Since then, we've seen, of course, these hotspots crop up in states like Texas and Florida and Arizona. And the officials in those states, the Republican governors of all of them, have been slowly pulled towards embracing masks. Texas Governor Greg Abbott actually in recent days mandated masks for many of the state's counties, which was a significant step. One of the best ways to keep businesses open while also slowing the spread is for everyone to wear a face covering like this when they go out. In Arizona, the governor, Doug Ducey, has allowed localities to require masks after initially uh, balking at that. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is also warming to masks as being an important part of uh, getting his state back on the right track. And I wonder what that says about where we are in the pandemic, because it seems like the fact that you have these Republican leaders who started out in many cases pretty skeptical about the need for huge public health measures as part of coronavirus, that even they are saying, look, this is actually really important and this is something that we need to do. And I wonder if it's almost that the the message is more powerful coming from them. Yeah, I think it is very significant that they're taking these steps. Uh, Look, when Greg Abbott comes out and says everybody needs to wear a mask in these parts of the state, that's something that could alienate people. However small a portion of the kind of anti-mask crowd is, it's a very vocal part of the Republican Party base. It's not easy for him to say that. I think if anything speaks to the the growing realization about the dire circumstances in Texas, Arizona, Florida, some of these other states, it is that evolution of how these Republican governors have talked about these issues and in many cases gone back on things that they said early in the outbreak when the situations in their state didn't look so bad. Aaron Blake writes about politics for The Fix. And now one more thing. Elevators before the coronavirus outbreak were already these strange, confined places governed by their own social etiquette. We face forward. We try not to make eye contact. People try not to talk to each other too much. But now as buildings start to reopen and office workers go back, we're going to have our new set of rules to follow. I'm Ben Garino. I'm a reporter with the Washington Post on the Health and Science Desk. It's natural and understandable that being in a confined space with a stranger, something that most of us probably haven't been doing for a long time because we've been home, 
due to the pandemic, it's going to be uncomfortable being in an elevator. So how do we minimize that? And the, the way to do that is just we should all be wearing masks. We should be facing forward and we should really not be talking because as we talk or cough or sneeze, that's what gets the virus particles into an elevator. And there should be capacity requirements that keep elevators at low capacity. So as you're filing into the elevator, there's a suggestion that we should be walking in in kind of like a checkerboard pattern. So there's nobody directly to your left or right. And a lot of buildings have rules that say, if our elevators normally fit 10 people, maybe there will be four of them. And and employers can help too. I know for some of us, waiting in the lobby on a normal workday might take some time as we wait for the elevator to free up. So to avoid those knots of people just by limiting, first of all, the number of people who need to be in the building at a time, and then if shifts are staggered, just so people aren't all flooding through the doors at once. And you might not think of it like this, but even in normal times, your building manager has as much an influence on your health maybe as your as your doctor. Building managers should be cleaning the air that circulates through offices with high efficiency filters, should be vacuuming, conducting regular inspections to keep mold down. We spend a lot of our time in our workspaces normally, and so we're being exposed to things in, in the environment, and, and building managers can help keep that a safe and clean environment for us to work in. There are lots of things in buildings that could be health hazards, but in terms of what we're thinking about when we go back to work, elevators shouldn't be like the big cause of anxiety despite them being confined spaces. There have been some discussions about should we be putting like air circulators or other kinds of filters in our elevators or even adding more elevators, but uh, because we spend so little time in elevators, it might not be something that, that we need to stress out. Ben Guarino is a science reporter for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You might be familiar with one of The Post's other amazing podcasts, Presidential, about the history of the U.S. presidency. They have just come out with a new episode about how a concert in 1939 transformed the Lincoln Memorial into a stage for civil rights protests. I like to think that there are ideals embedded in this memorial that are still valid and still unfulfilled and that still compel us to consider how we need to live as citizens in this country. You can find Presidential at WashingtonPost.com slash Presidential or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.